Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Years ago, I began a study of the book of Genesis. And one week, uh, I had two different people come to me and say something like this. What happens if I sin? Will I still go to heaven? Now, that question is hotly debated and there are two basic points of view. Some Christians would say, no, that ends it. You would not go to heaven. Matter of fact, I was once invited to be the spiritual life speaker at a Christian high school in the Midwest. And there was a teacher on campus who told the students that if they were speeding and got into an accident and were killed, they would not go to heaven because they sinned just before they died. So some Christians would say, no, that settles it. You don't go to heaven. And others would say, no, we all sin. You're never going to stop sinning. And so that doesn't affect whether or not you go to heaven because heaven is a gift given to you when you trust Jesus Christ. Now, what intrigued me is on the one hand, I was studying Genesis. And on the other hand, I was getting asked that question twice in one week. Now, there are passages, numerous passages, that discuss the question I was being asked, uh, but there are very few passages that include several different elements that answer that question. Uh, So I was intrigued that in Genesis, in principle, there is a passage that directly addresses that question And what I would say are two sides of the same coin of that question. So with that in mind, may I invite your attention to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. Uh, And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerah. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerah. 
And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, Oh, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill him for Rebekah, because she was indeed a beautiful woman to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have laid with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed... Uh, uh, hold on. I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's stop at verse 11. The rest of that's for next time. All right. Uh, the passage I just read is um, simply telling us two things. One is that um, there was a famine, and Isaac reacts to that famine uh, and moves, and the Lord appears to him. The second thing that's going on in this passage is that he ends up in a Philistine city and lies about his wife, saying it wasn't his wife, she was his sister. So that's, that's sort of the natural way this uh, passage unfolds. So let's look first at the fact that there was a famine. Verse 1 says, There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now, if you're reading the book of Genesis as a unit, uh, as a whole, then you will recall that Abraham, once he was in the land, experienced the famine in the land. And where did he go? Do you remember? He hightailed it to Egypt. So, the author says, there was a famine in the land. Now, he could have said, there's a famine in the land, and left it at that. By bringing up Abraham at this point, he is clearly implying that we need to contrast Abraham and Isaac. He is deliberately doing that. This is similar to the situation that Abraham was in. Now, as we will see in verse 2, as a result of this famine, Isaac headed for Egypt just like his father did. Now, uh, before I get into that, let me just pause long enough to say this. Uh, Isaac is a child of God, as was Abraham. And they experienced famine. So let me just make the observation that just because you are a Christian or a believer in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you're going to bypass all of the difficulties of life. Matter of fact, I just this week dealt in detail with a young lady 
who was going through a horrendous problem. And one of the things I said to her is, that's life. And Christians are not exempt. Christians go through problems and natural disasters just like everybody else. So, to bring it home, if there is an earthquake in Southern California, it's going to affect the atheist next door to you and you. That's just the way life works. So here is Isaac. He's a child of God, and he's experiencing a famine, and he takes off to Egypt. Now, the Bible says in verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. That's how we know he was headed there, by the way. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For you and your descendants I will give these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. The Lord now appears to Isaac. In the book of Genesis, this is the first time he appears to Isaac. He appeared to his father, Abraham, several times. This is the first time he's appeared to him. And what he says to him is, don't go to Egypt. I want you to stay in the land I promised to give Abraham. Now, this is called the Abrahamic covenant. Because earlier in the book of Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to him, I'm going to give you what we would call today Palestine. I'm going to give to you the Holy Land. That's yours. And I'm going to give it to you, Abraham, and to your descendants. Now, the problem with that little covenant is that Abraham had two descendants. I had more than that, but at the beginning he had Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was from Hagar. Remember that story? It was the handmaid, because his wife Sarah couldn't get pregnant. So he had a son by Hagar. So God says, no, 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 no. I said to you and your descendants through your wife Sarah. And that child was Isaac. So what's happening in this passage of Scripture is that God is reaffirming the covenant he made with Abraham and saying, just like I told Abraham I was giving him and his descendants this land, I'm now telling you I'm giving you this land. So this is a direct reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Um, I uh, often meet people. Uh, I think that's happened more to me in the last year than it has the rest of my life, but it just seems recently I've just met a lot of people who are Jewish. Uh, matter of fact, I met a young lady this week uh, for the first time, who, and she is Jewish. She just came back from Israel. When I meet somebody who is Jewish, the first thing I say to them, without exception, is, oh, I'm a Christian that is pro- Jewish. And they look at me, Christian that's pro-Jewish. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Not all Christians are pro-Jewish. 
Some are just neutral, and you know, some are in favor of the Palestinians. But I'm very pro-Jewish. They look at me and say, well, how, do, how does that happen? It's real simple. I'm one of those Christians that take the Bible at face value. I take it seriously. So when the Bible says that he gave the land to Abraham, I believe him. And he repeated that same promise to Isaac. And I take it he meant what he said. Matter of fact, if he didn't mean that, then how do we take anything he said and believe it? So I'm very pro-Jewish. And they look at me and say, or some of them have, not all of them, but yeah, but they don't have the land. Matter of fact, that's a very interesting story. It's a very interesting story. The Jews lost control of the land roughly at 600 B.C. And from 600 B.C. to 1948, the Jews were dispersed all over the world and did not control the land of Palestine. During that period of time, there were Bible teachers who said, one of these days, the Jews are going to go back to the Holy Land. And they were laughed at. You've got to be crazy. Uh, I mean, it's controlled by the Muslims. Those Bible teachers said, no, I'm telling you, the Bible says the land belongs to the Jews, and one of these days, the Jews are going to go back to the land. That did not happen until 1948. And then they didn't get the city of Jerusalem. That didn't happen until 1966 in the six-day, or is it 67, when they had the six-day war, and then they got control of Jerusalem, and that's still under debate. But they're going to get the whole thing. Uh, that's just a foretaste of what's coming. What the Bible teaches is it's when the Messiah comes and he's going to give them the land. Well, we who believe that Jesus is the Messiah believe he came the first time, uh, to die and pay for our sins, be resurrected and ascended, and that he's coming back. And when he comes back, the Bible is very clear about this, the Messiah gives the land of Israel to the Jewish people for at least a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20. So, this passage is the reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant, and that is very important. But look at what God says. He says to Isaac, verse 3, Dwell in this land, and I will be with you. I will bless you. And I will give your descendants all these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. But notice, I'm not just going to give you the land. I'm going to be with you. What a promise, which is the same one Jesus gives to us just before he left. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember that? Matthew chapter 28. And if I'm with you, I'm going to bless you. So he's making promises to Isaac beyond the legal covenant of giving him the land. He's promising his personal presence and his personal blessing. Look at verse 4. I will... Make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now notice what he says to Abraham. I'm sorry, to Isaac. He says, I'm going to multiply your descendants. Now, he says in this case, as the stars of the heaven, 
He said that same thing earlier to Abraham and added in another passage, and as the, sea, the sand on the seashore. In other words, he's going to have a lot of descendants. Then he says, I'm going to give those descendants the land, which is what I talked about just a minute ago. But he adds something else in verse 4, and this is what I want you to see. And in your seed, that is your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now what is that talking about? Well, many Bible teachers, including rabbis, have concluded that that's a veiled reference to the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come through Abraham, Isaac, and later Isaac's son, Jacob. And this is simply saying, as he promised Abraham, the Messiah is going to come through the Jewish line. The Jews gave us the Messiah in Jesus. And then Lord says this in verse 5, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now he just piles one phrase upon another to in essence say, And Abraham obeyed me. Uh, the language that's used in verse 5 is the kind of language that Moses uses later to describe the Mosaic law, uh, my charge my commandments, my statutes, my laws, which are probably all synonyms. It's hard to distinguish between each of those. But he's just piling one on top of another to say, hey, Isaac, your father obeyed me. Hint, hint. Get the message? Then you should do the same. So what did, what did Isaac do? I mean, God has appeared to him and said, don't go to Egypt. Stay in the land. So what does he do? Verse 6. Short, sweet, or bitter. So Isaac dwelt in gear. He did do what the Lord told him to do. He didn't go to Egypt, but he didn't stay in the land either. He sort of, sort of did both. As a matter of fact, uh, Abraham did that same thing. Uh, neither one of them totally obeyed the Lord. Now, the first part of this passage is simply telling us there was a famine and the Lord and Isaac's reaction to it. Let me, before I go to the second part of the passage, just insert here. This was a difficult time for them. There was famine in the land. He literally didn't know what to do. So what do you do when there's a difficult time in your life? Well, there's all kinds of answers to that. And one of them is, listen to the Lord and do what he says. Uh, Abraham did not do that completely, and neither did Isaac. So, he's going to go to this Philistine city. Verse 7 second part of the passage. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, Uh-oh, I am in trouble. This is a gorgeous woman. Matter of fact, we were told early in the book of Genesis how beautiful she was. This is a beautiful woman. And I'm outnumbered. I'm in this foreign place. Right, the Lord told you not to do that. Well, I'm there, 
and they'll kill me to get her. Sound familiar? Who did that? Abraham did that. Like father, like son. They both did the exact same thing. He said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say she's my wife because he thought they would kill her because she was so beautiful. And by the way, Abraham's wife Sarah was said to be beautiful. Both of these young ladies could have won beauty contest, apparently. They were gorgeous women, and both of their husbands, father and son, were afraid of what was going to happen. By the way, Abraham wasn't totally lying. Sarah was his half-sister, remember? But Isaac is totally lying. Because she's not his sister at all. So Abraham may have had a case. Uh, you know, he uh, doesn't. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think Isaac knew what had happened to Abraham? Yeah, I suspect he knew. You think the father told, or she told, how the Lord delivered them? I think it's possible. Well, assuming that's the case, then why in the world would you do that? If you knew that your father did it and almost got his wife in bed with another man, why would you do that? And the answer is, as someone has said, sin is never logical. Because if it were logical, you wouldn't do it. Or as someone has said, a harbor of lies is no real port in a storm. He tried to lie his way out of this. So he lied, and he got away with it. Well, at least for a time. Look at verse 8. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, we don't know how long the long time is, but it's been a while, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. The Hebrew word that's translated endearment actually means laughing or playing. Uh, modern translations, uh, other than this one that I'm reading from, other translations, translate it caressing. Now, we don't know exactly what these two were doing. They were in public, uh, and it's not likely they were maybe doing more than he was hugging her or caressing her. Maybe he was kissing her, I don't know. But uh, it wasn't what you did with your sister. So they got the idea that these two were married. Now, what would make him do that? I mean, if you're, if you're living a lie... Wouldn't you be careful? If you were afraid they were going to kill you for her when you first started this, wouldn't you maintain the lie so that you wouldn't get killed? And the answer is, you get used to the lie after a while and let your guard down. And that's the problem with lying. 
it's hard to maintain the facade. So I think the key in this verse is a long time. They'd been playing this game for a long time, and they got settled in, and finally, one day, he acted like she was his wife in public, and Abimelech, the Philistine king, saw it. So, verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she's your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac confessed. And he said, I'm going to tell you the truth. Because I was afraid you'd kill me on account of her. That's how. That's why I did it. So, Abimelech said, verse 10, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have lain with your wife, and she would have brought guilt on us. I find this very, very interesting. Um, simply, this pagan is rebuking this saint. I mean, in simple terms, that's what's going on. But uh, the pagan knew that what he did wasn't right. Now, how did he know that wasn't right? Who's to say it's not right to lie? He thought it was wrong to lie. How did he know that? The Ten Commandments have not been given yet. So how did he know? In the book of Romans, Paul says that the Gentiles, non-Jews, who don't know the law, do the law naturally because it is written in their heart. Uh, to use the phrase of one philosopher, there is a moral imperative in the heart and minds of people. That there's a moral consciousness that is universal. It's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to murder. And according to Paul in Romans chapter 2, that is written in the hearts of all human beings. So this pagan rebukes this saint and says, why'd you do that? You're going to get us killed? You know, that was bad. That was wrong. So, verse 11 says, Abimelech charged all of his people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. One more observation. And that is that, um, <laughs> in a sense, the pagan was more moral than the saint. Right? He rebuked him for lying. And you know, that's true. There are some non-Christians that are more moral than Christians. That's why Christians get the name, well, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, no, we're not. We're just human beings that are forgiven still have a sin nature. Uh, but there are some non-Christians, some atheists, that are very moral people. The Bible recognizes that. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, if you don't keep care of your own, you are worse than an infidel. Remember that verse? Meaning, unbelievers know that they should, they should do that, and if you don't do it, you're worse than they are. 
That is a startling verse, by the way. All right. This story is really rather simple. There's a famine. God appears to Isaac and tell him, tells him not to go to Egypt. And he goes to a Philistine city and lies and gets caught in his lie. Now, if this were a more informal gathering, I think we could really have some fun at this point. What would you say is the point of this story? If I had just read it and uh, closed the Bible and said, why is this in here? What is the Lord trying to tell us by including this story in the Bible? What would you say? Let me ask that question another way. What have you gotten out of this so far? If, if you were to leave and somebody would say, what did Mike speak on tonight? You'd say, well, Genesis. Uh, what did he say? What would you tell him? Well, Isaac, there was a famine, and he ended up in a Philistine city, and he lied. Is that the point of the story? Is that in here? Yeah, that's clearly here. Uh, let, me, let me lay out a couple of truths I think are embedded in this story. One is, do not follow the flaws of your father. I mean, he deliberately calls attention to the fact that he did what his father did. He wants us to compare those two stories. So, don't do what your father does in terms of his bad behavior. Let me um, read to you a verse in 1 Kings chapter 15. It's talking about one of the ancient kings in Israel many years later, and it says, and he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord as God, as was the heart of his father David. That is said repeatedly of other kings, but I just chose that passage. He walked in the sins of his fathers, like father, like son, in a negative sense of the term. So I think you could read this passage and walk away saying, don't follow your father's flaws. Isaac did. I think the one great lesson that comes through here is, don't lie. Abraham lied and it caught up with him. Isaac lied and it caught up with him. Be sure your sin will find you out. What you sow is what you're going to reap. Don't lie. There's a pastor that told a story of a fellow he knew who was in the business world. And one day, the boss said to this man, I want you to make an untrue disclosure to a customer in order that we might maintain that customer's business. And that fellow, who was a Christian, refused. His boss insisted that he do it. 
And the fellow replied, and I quote now, If I do this, then you will never be able to trust me. You will never know whether I'm lying to you or not. End of quote. His boss was infuriated at his defiance and threatened to fire him. But the man would not budge. And as a result, they lost the customer and lost the account. However, the fellow managed to keep his job. A few weeks later, he was called into the boss's office. A higher position had become available, and he was offered a promotion. The reason that he was offered the promotion, according to his boss, was, and again I quote, you're the only one here that I can truly trust. <laughs> Don't lie. Just tell the truth. I think another observation you could make is that um, you should obey the Lord. Uh, this was a difficult situation, and I said in going through the passage, one of the things we should learn here is that we should obey the Lord. Uh, what's interesting to me is this. This is very important. It is possible to obey the Lord one minute and to disobey him the next. Isn't that interesting? He said, don't go to Egypt. So he didn't. He obeyed the Lord. Turned right around and lied. Now that's what we all have to be careful of. That we slip up and do it right. And then we get proud of doing it right, thinking we're righteous. Take heed when you think you stand, because that's when you fall. So be careful. Uh, it's possible to obey the Lord one minute and disobey Him the next, and this passage illustrates that beautifully. In juxtaposition, he obeys the Lord in not going to Egypt and turns around and lies in the very next passage. All right, is that what we should get out of this passage? Is that sufficient? Don't follow the flaws of your father. Don't lie. Don't disobey the Lord. We got it? Tell the truth and obey the Lord. Got it? All of that is here, but that's not the point of the passage. Why did the Lord put this passage in this book. Now, bear with me for a minute, because I want to talk a bit about how you study the Bible. Many of you have heard me say this over and over again. The Bible, this is really profound. You're going to have to hang with me. The Bible, I mean, this is really tough. You're going to have to think. The Bible is written in books. Did you ever notice? Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. Now a man came along and he chopped them up into chapters, and then he chopped the chapters up into verses, and we get all focused on those little verses, which is fine. That's legitimate. But you must always understand those verses and those chapters in the context of the book. And if you don't understand them in the context of the book, you're going to misunderstand them. Uh, 
I had a dollar for every time I've heard a preacher, especially on the radio or television, take a verse and go flying into the stratosphere and thinking, oh, he just didn't even come close to what that verse means because he didn't consider the context. What he had is he had a sermon idea and he didn't find a text, he found a pretext to preach it and he quoted the Bible to justify what he wanted to preach. And so I, I, I can't stress enough how important it is that you look at every verse and every passage in the context of the book. Now, if you do that with this passage, what would you walk away with? Now, that means you've got to think. Any idea? Boy, I wish we had a time to discuss that. I think that would just be more fun. What did the Lord make a big issue out of in this passage that relates to the rest of the book? The Abrahamic covenant. When he said, don't go to Egypt, he deliberately appeared to Isaac to say, I want to remind you, I made a covenant with your father, and I intend to keep it no matter what you do. That's the message of this passage. It has to do with the Lord keeping his promise, keeping his covenant. Now, what about all that stuff about Abraham lying and Isaac lying and Isaac following the flaws of his father and disobeying the Lord? What about all that? Oh, that's in here. So put it all together and you come up with something like this. God is faithful to his promise even when we are fickle. Even when we fail, God is faithful to do what he promised in his covenant. And our failure does not forfeit the covenant. Now back at the beginning of this, I said something about two different people in the same week asked me, if I sin, can I still go to heaven? What's the answer to that? Yeah. Yeah. Do I get to heaven because I stopped sinning? No. If that's the case, we're doomed, folks. <laughs> Anybody here stop sinning? Of course not. That's not the way we get to heaven. We get to heaven because Jesus Christ paid for our sin, arose from the dead, and we trust him. And when we trust him to get us to heaven because he paid for our sin, we get the gift of eternal life. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoso believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a covenant. It's called the new covenant. It's mentioned in Jeremiah and it's repeated by the Lord in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And it's called the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is, my son died for your sins, paid for your sins, arose from the dead, and if you trust him, you get eternal life. Even if you sin after that. That's heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? Let me, let, me, let me emphatically declare. Did you know that the book of Romans says, to him that worketh not 
but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. To him, his faith is counted for righteousness. Did you hear that verse? It's Romans chapter 4, verse 5. To him that works not. I've talked to people literally for over 50 years. Literally. All over the United States. And I'm here to tell you, most people think that you get to heaven by living right. Good luck. How do you know you've done enough right things? Of course, everybody thinks they've done, you know, God grades on the curve. I'm better than him. God doesn't grade on the curve. God grades on the standard of his own righteousness. By that standard, we all fail. Wow. Then there are those people who think they're going to go to heaven because they're religious. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I give money. Good for you. There's absolutely nothing to do with going to heaven. How do you know that? To him that worketh not. Romans 4, 5. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. Well, then if you just say that, then you could go sin and... I mean, you, that's a license to sin, right? And you can just go sin and... No. You see, there, there are a couple of answers to that. One is, if you really understand that God's given you the gift of eternal life, out of gratitude, you want to you stick as close to him as possible. Remember that little phrase, and I will be with you? That's the key to this. Once you really get to know the Lord, you want him to be with you. That's the motivation. And there's others. There's many others. And as you grow in the Word, you learn that it just doesn't pay anyway. As a matter of fact, today, I opened my computer, and when you open your computer, do you go to MSNBC? Uh, no, that's not it. It's msn.com. And there's the news and there are all these kind of things, the latest news from the entertainment world, the latest news from the sports world. Is your computer open to that? I do mine deliberately. And there was this article, Uncomfortable Things That Could Change Your Life Forever. Oh, ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> Click on that. And one of them was, be honest. <laughs> that's just common sense, right? And when you know the Lord, you're motivated to do that. But the truth is, nobody is perfect. We all sin. So we don't get to heaven because we somehow quit sinning. We get to heaven by the grace of God. Amen. And that's the point of this passage. That God is going to fulfill his covenant in the case of Abraham and Isaac, to give them the land, to be with them, to bless them, and to multiply their seed, and to bring the Messiah to the earth, and in our case, to forgive us our sins and give us eternal life. God is going to fulfill his covenant even when we sin. Amen? A lot of people don't like that. That's because they don't understand the grace of God and they don't understand human depravity. So, let me um, end by telling you this. Somebody has said, 
God prevented Isaac from leaving the promised land and renewed the covenant with him. But then he had to protect Rebekah when Isaac lied about the relationship with her to Abimelech. He's saying Isaac sinned. Another said, God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and in the future. What he has done for the fathers, he will do for the sons. So believers today have a covenant, a new covenant. And there's nothing that we can do that's going to change that covenant. Would you like an illustration? I could give you some illustrations. But let me give you one from the Lord. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. And look at verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 1. King Solomon, stop. Who was King Solomon? The wisest man who had ever lived up to that point and maybe ever. And everybody agrees with that. This is the stupidest wise man that ever lived. Look at verse 1. But Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, who was his wife, and then he names them. And then look at verse 2. And the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Samson clung to those he loved. And he had seven hundred wives, princes, three hundred concubines, and his wife turned away his heart. I say any man that has seven hundred wives is just plain stupid. And on top of that, three hundred concubines. The Lord said, do not do this. So what did he do? The Lord said, do not do this, because if you marry their, those foreign wives that serve idols, that worship idols, you are going to have your heart turned toward idols. So what did Solomon do? He went and married 700 of them. And that wasn't good enough. He got three more hundred concubines. So, verse 4, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord as God, as was the heart of his father David. Do you hear what this is saying? Solomon, and you knew he was wise, and he was. You knew he had 700 wives, and he did, and 300 concubines, and he did. But did you know it turned his heart away from the Lord? Now, you can't get any more serious than that, right? 
So, verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Now, it can't get any more serious than this. You're not just disobeying the Lord, your heart's turned to idols. Now look at verse 9. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, and he appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning these, this thing that he should not go to any other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded him. The Lord went to him twice and told him not to do it, and he did it anyway. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my commandment and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Now, by the way, sin has consequences, even for wise people, even for saints. Sin has consequences, and you learn that after a while. It's one of the reasons you don't do it. But look at verse 12. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Translated, you've sinned and you're going to suffer the consequences. You are fickle and you fail. But I, the Lord said, am going to be faithful to my covenant. I think that's one of the most profound illustrations in all of the Bible over the fact that God is faithful even when we fail. Isn't that great? Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Teach us to be like Father and be like Son. To be like you as our Father and be faithful. Instead of our human fathers, we're often fickle and fail. Teach us this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.